bridge the city. Whoa, whoa, bridge the city. Yeah, bridge the city. Yeah, gotta bridge the city. The city, bridge the city. Whoa, whoa, bridge the city. Yeah, bridge the city. Yeah, gotta bridge the city. Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. I'm your host, Benjamin Rangel, and on today's episode, we have an interview with one of the candidates for the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, Judge Everett Mitchell. The state Supreme Court elections are officially nonpartisan, and there are seven justices that serve for 10-year terms on the court. And although they are nonpartisan, so no Republicans and Democrats on your ballot, ideologically, the court is currently at a 4-3 conservative majority. And since retiring Justice Patience Rogensack leans conservative, this upcoming election is theoretically for the ideological majority on the court. Beyond Judge Mitchell, who we're talking to today, there are three other candidates running for state Supreme Court. The two conservatives running include former state Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly, who prior to being appointed by then-Governor Scott Walker to the Supreme Court, worked in the private sector. And then there's also Waukesha County Judge Jennifer Darrow, who became well-known in Wisconsin as the presiding judge for the trial of Daryl Brooks, the man who was found guilty in the Waukesha Christmas Parade attack. Uh, She's also a conservative. Justice Kelly denied our interview request, and Judge Darrow did not respond. The other liberal candidate, besides Judge Mitchell, is Judge Janet Protasewicz, who is a former Milwaukee County Assistant District Attorney and has served on the Milwaukee County Circuit Court since 2014. Judge Protasewicz was hoping to be on the podcast, uh, but we ran into some scheduling challenges. However, uh, we're still trying to work some things out. Maybe we'll get something out before the primary um, on the 21st. Bridge the City is nonpartisan, and this interview with Judge Mitchell should not be considered an endorsement of him or any other candidate. The primary election to narrow the four candidates down to just two is on February 21st. The top two vote getters will move on to the April 4th general election. And folks, let me say that this election is big. I know we say it every time on the podcast how important elections are, especially the local elections, but I'm not exaggerating when I say that the state Supreme Court holds the future of our state in its hands, and so this election in turn will determine the future of our state. The court is expected to continue to play a role in determining election disputes, including elections at the national level, like upcoming presidential elections, for instance. It may also address legal concerns around heavily gerrymandered districts and will likely determine the legality of an 1849 abortion ban that's currently in the books. So although it might seem a little esoteric in terms of what the court does, they will be making decisions that impact every single one of us. This election matters, and with low turnout expected, like in most primary elections for state Supreme Court, uh, this is truly anyone's race. Alrighty, so let's learn about one of the candidates hoping to be on the court after the April election, Judge Everett Mitchell. Judge Mitchell was an assistant district attorney in Dane County and was elected to the Dane County Circuit Court shortly after that. He has his law degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he was also an adjunct professor. Let's listen to my conversation with Judge Mitchell. All right. Uh, 
Judge Mitchell, thank you so much for being on Bridge the City. Why don't we start off and just let listeners learn a little bit more about yourself. Where did your interest in uh, law and public service come from? Where are you from? Tell the folks at home a little bit about yourself. Man, you had a whole bunch of questions in one question. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just tell the folks about yourself. No, man. Um, I'll I start with that, man. My interest really started... And when I used to run restorative justice programs in uh, here in Dane County. So I started this program called the journey home. Um, And at that time we were building, you know, restorative justice practices and trying to make sure that men and women had the resources that they needed. And so I built the platform on this idea of rest, residence, employment, support, and treatment. And those were the four things that people were coming out saying that they needed. So, you know, started working with men and women six months prior to release and then giving them the resources by the time they hit the community. And so we saw doing that, we saw recidivism drop from 70% down to 15% in just the two years of our program. So, but it was doing that work that I saw so many people facing discriminations and being just treated meanly. And, and so, uh, so while I had not even thought about the law, one of my mentors was like, you know, the law is a good place to think about how you support people who don't, who don't to make sure that their rights are not broken or trampled upon. So then I just, you know, picked up the LSAT book and started studying and talked to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and, and law school. And, uh, you know, they let me in. Yeah. And that's, what we've been, and that's what we've been doing ever since. Wonderful. And are you originally from Dane County area? No, I'm originally from Texas. Oh, okay. Fort Worth, Texas. Great. Yeah. yeah. When so did you I bring moved, yourself to Wisconsin then? Yeah. So I moved here in 2004. 2004. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in Texas, people coming from Texas, they often comment on the cold here in Wisconsin. So... Did there was there something in particular that brought you to Wisconsin? Well, you know, I would say that my master's degrees and time spent at Princeton kind of broke me into the notion of uh, winter. So <laughs> yeah. in the north, northeast is a little bit more. You know, you get the, the north, northeasterners and you know, like ten, you know, ten, ten to twelve inches of snow in in five minutes. So yeah, so I, by the time I got here, I really enjoyed the seasons. I mean, Texas is only hot in hell. So. <laughs> At least in Wisconsin, you get to see the beauty of all the seasons at one time. Yeah, lovely. Well, we're glad you're here in Wisconsin. always love when people come from other places and call Wisconsin home. Um, And so your interest in the law came from your work in restorative justice. uh, But going from uh, getting a law degree, practicing law, being a judge, and then running for state Supreme Court, that's a big jump. So why are you running for state Supreme Court, one of the highest uh, legal positions in the state? Well, I believe that our state deserves a justice that reflects the diversity and ideas of our entire state. And so as uh, as we think about the both, and it seems like, man, it really does seem like I'm running two races, right? And maybe we can speak to that real quick. Because when people, when people ask me, you know, what is happening, I'm saying we're running two races. One race that is, you know, importantly focused on reproductive choice, uh, you know, gerrymandering, fair maps, and we're addressing some of those critical concerns, right? But then there's a whole nother race where there are groups of people, groups of organizations that are concerned about justice and fairness, how the court system treats people, how judges engage in their courtrooms, and how so many people feel feel this sense that they have been denied rights and access and courts have been the critical place that have denied their rights. So, So in those two races, you know, what is important to both groups don't always seem to coalesce. Uh, to each other. So while reproductive choice is, you know, since Dobbs overturned Roe, that's a very important piece, but also the notion of maps 
is important, but it's almost like one group is just catching up to what the other groups have been saying this whole time. That our votes in Milwaukee, you know, cutting down the access to votes, you know, shutting down places where people can go vote. All of that seems to be a strategy that, you know, many in Milwaukee, especially in urban, Latino, black, you know, uh, Asian groups have been experiencing for a long time. And so they're, you know, so I'm trying to bridge both messages uh, to say that all of these things, you know, these three or four things, yes, they're important. But you have about, you know, 20 to 25 that are still impacting communities of color that they are concerned about as well. Yeah, that's interesting to think about the race from those two different perspectives. On one side, you have very specific policy or issues that voters are concerned about. And on the other side, it's like the whole system, the criminal justice system that has been uh, disadvantaging communities of color in particular, uh, a system that has been broken for for a while now. And so uh, making sure people are aware of both and in figuring out which messages are best for which groups, but also making folks realize both are important for all groups, you know? Exactly, um, exactly. Which, which actually exactly. brings me to my next question. Uh, Bridge the City is, is about engagement and activism. We emphasize the importance of local election like this, like this one. Uh, but a lot of folks don't know about the state Supreme Court, its purpose, its function. Um, mm-hmm. I have colleagues at the school I work at when I ask them, hey, are you ready for this upcoming election? And they're like the one in April. I'm like, no, there's a primary in February. So just um, you mentioned a few specific policies. What are some other reasons why voters really need to pay attention to the state Supreme Court and how it impacts um, people here in Wisconsin? Well, I think, quite honestly, Ben, I think people need to pay attention to all levels of court systems. So Supreme Court, appellate court, circuit court, municipal courts, because these are the courts that make and impact Wisconsin's everyday lives. So they make decisions every day at a very everyday, very level, right? They send thousands upon thousands of people are coming through our court systems every day throughout our state. And so they're having direct touches on the lives of people every day. So the Supreme Court may have bigger administrative responsibilities over our entire court system. So yes, they're gonna hear cases that involve the ones we've talked about, but they're gonna also have administrative duties to talk about judicial education, making sure that judges have the, the, the tools and resources necessary to actually do the work they need to do. They are the ones who also uh, provide you know, funding and budgeting for our courts. And they're the advocacy branch to address what is necessary, what we need from the, both the executive and the legislative in order for courts to function properly. So whether it's security of our courts or just having court reporters in the courtroom, man, those are, you know, those are things that the Supreme Court can do. And most importantly, they create committees that allow for uh, subjects that are concerning to Wisconsinites to try to figure out a solution that empowers courts to be and move more effectively. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I teach uh, high school government, but a lot of the conversation there is about U.S. government and politics, not the state level stuff. Mm-hmm. And so th- those administrative responsibilities are something that I lose sight of. Uh, so that's a good reminder. Uh, I bet a lot of folks didn't know that. So appreciate that. Um, this is a criticism that I hear from the right. Some conservatives will often say that candidates for statewide office who are from uh, Madison, Dane County or from Milwaukee County are like, quote unquote, out of touch with the rest of Wisconsin. How might you address a voter that maybe feels that way or some voters from the rural parts of the state that um, see uh, candidates from Dane County, Milwaukee County is kind of being the same in terms of their perspective mm-hmm. and such. 
Yeah, I will say that, you know, I spent the entire time uh, my candidacy hitting every part of our state. So I've been at least twice, man, through all through very rural and urban areas. And you I would be surprised if there are two narratives that as a as a black man, uh, because your listeners won't be able to see me. (laughs) But as as a black man, uh, I travel this state majority by myself, no security going throughout this entire state. And uh, and I have not experienced what people in our communities think. I would experience up north and different parts of our state. It's just the western, northern, uh, northeastern parts. Man, these people, and they're just so nice. They just want they want the conversation. They want the energy. They want to know how the world can be better. They want to know how it can be made better. I mean, and so you know, maybe there are you know there are these pockets where yes, you will see these extreme views, but that's not my experience at all. Whether I'm in bars or you know, bookstores or gas stations or, you know, coffee shops. And, you know, there is nothing. They just want to have a conversation. And, you know, they want people who are strong enough to respect them so that you can't sit down and have that conversation with them. So being out of touch just simply means that you don't even take time to visit with people who are not like you. And and quite honestly, I could tell you as a person of color, uh, just because you live in Madison, Dane County does not mean, you know, these groups are, are open to the conversation either. So, yeah, it's a good point. Um, I think the national media in particular likes to build up this narrative, this polarized narrative of the country. But at the end of the day, you found that if you just are open to the conversation and willing to listen and hear people out, um, there's a lot of commonality across the state. Yeah, faith. I would tell you faith and community, children. Uh, when I talk about the work that I've done with kids, I mean, they just love that stuff because every, everybody knows that the most precious gift that we have is our children. And then because I run drug court, I can have a conversation about how those rural communities have been decimated and 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 damned and destroyed because of this opioid crisis and you know methamphetamines and they just like sit in islands and nobody is engaging in resources to support them and the rebuilding of their families. They're losing their babies and they feel the pain of that. Yeah. Um, getting back to some of your opponents, uh, in particular, Justice Kelly is, is the only candidate with actual firsthand experience serving on the state Supreme Court. Uh, I wonder how your experience compares and has prepared you to be uh, on the state Supreme Court if you're elected. Well, you also remember that Dan Kelly was never elected. And so he's never been elected to actually any judicial role whatsoever. So uh, his his brief stint was because he was appointed by Walker. And he was, you know, you know, he was defeated in his attempt to run to stay, uh, stay on the bench. So, you know, I think when you, you know, me being elected twice in my community, uh, you know, stepping up and being elected really allows for me to be able to understand what circuit court judges do every day. And, you know, sometimes I think, you know, he can be so aloof when he talks about, you know, we need to protect the Constitution. Well, that's mainly because he's never been a judge who's had to exercise his values and discretion to make decisions for everybody, uh, for things that we have to deal with every day. Whether, you know, how do you, how long do you sentence a person? How, when do you give a person back to the a child, back to their parents? When do you take a child away from their parents? You know, when do you, when do you make a decision about when to dismiss a motion that's before you and not before you? So there are factors that, you know, you deal with every day as a circuit court judge that he's never, ever, had the burden and responsibility to do. So he can come back and sound like a law professor to talk about protecting constitution, 
because he's never been in a place where you feel the agony of listening to a sex trafficked child and not having the resources in the community to actually address it, but you're expected to make a decision. So, so those kinds of pieces are things that, um, you know, quite frankly, I don't think any of my opponents have a heart to be able to articulate what they've done. Uh, but more importantly, I think if, since you asked me about him, I think that is probably one of those limitations. It doesn't give him a, doesn't give him a leg up. If anything, it demonstrates the deficit that occurs when he seems so disconnected from the realities of everyday people. Yeah, as you mentioned kind of at the beginning, most voters aren't really thinking about uh, the nuances of the state constitution when they're when they're thinking about the criminal justice system, right? They're thinking about how it impacts them, their family, their communities, uh, more so than this, you know, philosophical worldview of, of mm-hmm. some legal document. Um, granted, you know, important, obviously, the state constitution, the U.S. constitution, important, uh, for yeah. sure, as the government yeah. teacher must say. But, exactly. um, yeah, I hear yeah. it for sure. Exactly. And amendments. Yes. Yep. Uh, and uh, speaking of other c- candidates, um, you and Judge uh, Protosewicz are the two quote unquote liberal candidates for listeners at home. Know that the state Supreme Court is a nonpartisan election, so there's no Republican or Democrat uh, party affiliation with the candidates. Uh, but folks ideologies do come out. And so how would you differentiate between you and, and the other liberal candidate, Judge Protosewicz? I think the the fundamental difference between Janet and I is that we have similar profiles, you know, former prosecutors uh, and been on the bench uh, similar lengths of time or close to similar lengths. But I think it's not only uh, that we've been prosecutors or been on the bench. It really is our different leadership profiles and what we've done with the roles that we have. Like I said, I have a whole different set of experiences for your listeners to consider. Uh, like one, you know, like I told you, I did restorative justice programs working with those restorative justice programs gave me a perspective that people can change and that they sometimes can use systems to change. I think another point of differentiation is how I've chosen to use my power. And so, you know, as a judge, when I, I got, was able to change CCAP rules. Now for your listeners, CCAP is a circuit court automated website that people can go in and check your criminal charges, all those other charges that you have criminal, civil, uh, you know, divorces, evictions. And I use my power to, uh, to petition to change the rules for CCAP so that anybody who has a charge that is dismissed or they've been found not guilty or an eviction that is there can be removed from CCAP, which, which hadn't happened before. And so now there's a new app that the, some of the University of Law School students created that allows for people to clear out their CCAP records for which charges have been dismissed. And when we were doing the committee, over 200,000 people had was had still had charges sitting out there. And we were able to make sure that those individuals could get that stuff removed off their CCAP records. Or just me doing the work that I do for children, right? So I led the charge to take handcuffs off of kids in our courtroom in Dane County because I wanted to implement a trauma-informed perspective inside of our courts, especially the race of juveniles, because we talk about it, but we weren't practicing it. So for a judge to come out and say, we're going to institute trauma-informed practices, that we're going to disrupt the child welfare to juvenile delinquency to adult prison pipeline. I don't talk about the school to prison pipeline because I don't have control over that. What I do have control over is the child welfare to juvenile delinquency to adult prison. And because of those trauma-informed practices, we have been able to reduce the recidivism of our young people uh, to such degree that we have 47% decrease in juvenile court deaths referrals in Dane County. And 85% of our young people don't come back. 
we went down from four judges to three judges because we no longer need the bodies can justify having those four bodies in the juvenile rotation. So, so people ask me fundamentally, what's the difference? I'm like, it is what we do in the community, how we have worked hard to transform. And I have worked hard to transform our community so that we're not locking up people. I don't brag about how many people I've locked up. I brag about how many futures I've saved. And that is the statement of, you know, following, you know, Frederick Douglass's idea that it's far easier, it is far easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And that is the philosophy that guides my judicial understanding of how I choose to use my discretion. Great. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. And for the listeners, uh, clearing up that CCAP report means that folks have easier access in life in terms of employment and such. I mean, in case and people weren't aware of that impact, right? Like that, yep. a lot of folks just are immediately discredited despite a charge being dismissed and not technically a part of, you know, it shouldn't be on the record to begin with. Right. And so just for folks who don't know the impact of that. Um, and it's, and it's a severe impact. I don't, I mean, I can't tell you how many people who've been denied jobs or been denied housing just because they see it because, you know, listeners used to always understand it should be, uh, you're innocent until proven guilty. But when it shows up on an electronic database, it is basically guilty until you can prove that you're innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I actually had the the privilege to serve on Governor Evers uh, People's Maps Commission way back when uh, when the governor had established a, a commission of of folks from the community. So I represented Milwaukee's congressional district uh, with another commissioner, and we had a whole episode about fair maps on the podcast here. So listeners are well aware of the impact of partisan gerrymandering. And the issue of the the, the recent maps uh, may reach the Supreme Court. And so I know you might not be able to talk about specifics. Um, and that's been a, a point of criticism from folks on the right have criticized. Um, I know at least uh, Judge Portisawicz about her conversations about her openness about the, the maps, so on and so forth. But I'm interested if you're able to say, share anything, like what's your judicial perspective on uh, gerrymandering and redistricting, if you're, if you're able to say anything on that. So what I always say to my you know, conservative colleagues who say you can't project, I would say that the role of judge is not to, you know, you know we shouldn't be out here middle schooling saying just giving s- statements, right? We should point to constitutional decisions that, or I would say not necessarily constitution, but at least decisions that have been made that we're critical of. And so my opinion on maps and fair maps really focuses on what decisions do I believe have been decided wrongly that have led to the adverse outcomes that we're experiencing today. So, you know, so when the, you know, Wisconsin Supreme Court really took the least change approach in the maps and in basically returning back to those maps after the Supreme Court sent it back, it was a decision that really didn't have any grounding in statute or any precedent. So, you know, so you're wondering, like, where did you get this from? Where did you pull this from? And when people talk about conservative judicial activism, that's a moment where you could say, this is what conservative judicial activism looks like. It's not rooted in precedent. It's not rooted in any kind of other state or federal law. And so they chose this approach because they wanted to go back to a previous design map, which obviously once people experienced what that map looked like here in Wisconsin, they became very upset because yes, they could vote, 
because they've always voted, but now they've felt what it is like to lose your voice in the same process. So I think that for me, we have to get back to, you know, not just doing political zingers because that's really not helpful. We should not be doing that. We should be able and rightly so be able to criticize any decision that has been written and be able to say why we disagree with it, why we agree with it, and give those arguments because that is the space that we're supposed to be in. I had one guy, uh, one place they were like, oh, judge, you know, you should not be able to have uh, an opinion on these cases. I said, uh, I'm a judge, I'm a lawyer, and I teach at the law school. You think I don't have an opinion about decided cases? No. I said, you can have the ability to say some cases are right, some are wrong. And you, get, you just got to be able to justify why you believe that. And so he wouldn't let it go. So I said, well, let me, let me ask you this question. Do you believe Plessy versus Ferguson was the right decision? Since you believe in precedent so much, do you believe it was the right decision? And you know he just, you, you know they didn't want to answer that question. <laughs> I said, exactly. That, that's the point. It was wrong. And it was wrong. And, you know, some years later, almost, you know, 60 some odd years, 69 years later, it was overturned because it was the wrong decision. And that is what I mean when I say we have the capacity to criticize decisions that are not right. Mm -hmm. And for listeners sake, Plessy versus Ferguson was the Supreme Court decision that ruled segregation, public segregation was was legal. Right. Yeah. Um, on the basis of race, uh, which obviously I would hope everyone could point to now and say that was the wrong decision, in fact. Right. Um, and I think voters ought to know what what the people that they might vote for think about exactly, previous exactly. decisions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, great. So we're going to take a uh, Thank you for, for all those uh, answers. We're going to take a step back from uh, the uh, race itself and just ask the last two questions. And uh, the first one being just a proud accomplishment. You have a long career working in restorative justice, um, working in the legal field and public service in general, thinking back uh, upon your career, what's one accomplishment that sticks out to you that you're really proud of? Um, I'm probably, um, I'm probably proud as a judge to help start the, uh, to partner with the, the Madison school district to start the office of youth engagement. It was, you know, because of where I come from, education was so important because I know how I struggle. Uh, and so what I saw becoming a judge was like, there was like this gap between young people who were in our system and the educational partners who were supposed to support them. And so in Madison, we created this Office of Youth Engagement where the court system and the school system work together to ensure that none of the young people fall through the cracks. And so we have specific uh, counselors and educators, social workers who are in the office, and we just make sure that they can track all of the young people as they kind of move through our systems to make it easier to make sure they have their credits, make sure their foster parents or guardians or, you know, whomever that whatever placement that they're in, make sure that they have a seamless way of making sure that the young people don't get lost in the system. So uh, it's not something that a lot of people have talked about, but it's one of those things that I'm so grateful because I can see the difference in the outcomes for these young people, especially related to education. And I don't think that any, I could be wrong, but I just don't think any other court system, especially juvenile court system in our state has that kind of partnership with their school districts. Wow. Yeah. It does seem really powerful. Um, thank you for that. Um, lastly, Bridge the City, one thing that makes the podcast unique is that every single episode ends with tangible action steps from our guests. 
and how to get involved and make a difference in their community. So I think the obvious one for all listeners is to be informed and to, and to vote uh, in the primary on February 21st uh, and then in the general in April. Uh, but do you have another action step or steps, plural, for listeners where they can leave listening to this, uh, hearing from you, hearing your perspective and leave and take some immediate action in their communities? I would say because I am really sensitive to um, enhancing and supporting the juveniles in these systems, I would ask your listeners to become CASA volunteers. So CASA volunteers are court-appointed special advocates that are court-appointed to be in the lives of young people and their families. And, you know, while some people think of it like a big brother, big sister, it's different because in a CASA program, you get access to the information that is actually happening with the family. So you get brought inside the court system, you get to participate in it, you get to hear all our hearings, even though it's confidential, and it gives you a lens on uh, what is really happening in the lives of so many broken, uh, broken down people and their families and their systems. And you are, you probably will, a CASA worker will see that family more than the social worker or the guardian litem attached to that case. So they, be, they become the most important part of our entire process. And, uh, and so some of my CASA volunteers are the difference between breaking up a family and sending the kid away or keeping the family together and making sure the child has the resources that they need. So I would ask all of your listeners to flood the system with CASA, but CASA volunteer training so they can be used in the court system to better advocate for young people and families. I love that. That's a, uh, that's exactly the type of action step we we look for. One that many folks might not know about. It's super tangible. Something they could literally do tomorrow. Look into that volunteer process. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. And then uh, just because uh, you have the humility and you didn't plug it yourself, I'm sure there's a website that people could go to if they are listening to this and they like what what they hear and they want to support you. You want to just quick plug that? Yeah. No problem. Uh, www.judgemitchellforjustice.com. Uh, you can go there, find videos, you know, click on the, you know, donate button, the endorse button, uh, different ways to support. And uh, most importantly, man, register to vote and come out and, and uh, you know, spread this. If you like what you're hearing, spread this among your friends so that we can uh, make history doing black history. There's never been a person of color elected to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And this is an opportunity for us to get somebody uh, through that space that could be able to transform at least the face of what we see uh, on the Supreme Court and give uh, a whole nother population or generation an opportunity to see themselves reflected in the people who make decisions on the highest uh, from the highest position in our yeah. state. Well, thank you so much, Judge Mitchell. I really appreciate you being on Bridge the City. No problem, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Bridge the City. Thank you to Judge Mitchell and his team. Uh, And folks, make a plan to vote right now. Think about who you know in your circle that you could also remind that there's an election February 21st. I'm telling you, not many folks are aware and are talking about it. Thanks to always to our patrons, those supporters who every single month give a little bit to keep us going. Consider becoming a patron today uh, for as little as just $4.14 a month. And uh, in the meantime, got an idea for a story perhaps want to know more about how to support maybe get involved yourself reach out to us on our website on social media and as always let us know how you have helped bridge the city bridge the city whoa